How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Robocop to move away so he can take the scene. <laughs> Robocop aside. Oh, hi, Murph. God, imagining uh, Tommy Wiseau getting blown away, Paul Verhoeven style. Ah! I, that was, I was thinking of Tommy Wiseau walking out after getting covered in toxic waste. Just, <laughs> Just getting splattered by a car. Kill me! <laughs> Just Robocop detailing mm. his origin. Oh, that's a funny story, Murph. <laughs> I like this yeah, version, where he's just RoboCop's <laughs> friend more than anything else. I, I love the idea of Tommy Wiseau being inserted into a special edition of RoboCop, where where he's just kind of the hype man for every scene. Like, he's not important <laughs> to it. Like, he's on the sideline like, I would take that for a dollar. Oh, no, Clarence Bartico, run. I would take that for two dollar. <laughs> Bitches, leave. Got, gotta love the twenty, the Tommy Wiseau meme still running hot in twenty twenty three. I do want to see that version of the movie though. <laughs> almost, almost as bad as what we we're joking about last night about there being like a WWE version of Halloween, <laughs> which could work. Stone I'm still Cold la- Steve Loomis is just. just- <laughs> I'm still laughing at Stone Cold Steve Loomis. <laughs> Those those words entered my mind. I'm like, I was it was it was like I, I stunned possessed. him like, six I'm... times, <laughs> six times. I gave him a beer. He didn't drink. I gave him another beer. Uh, I just it's like I was possessed by a muse. Like I, I'm not funny enough to come up with Stone Cold Steve Loomis on my own. Just a mental image of him throwing that trench coat off, or it's got like the fucking sleeves missing. <laughs> Donald Pleasant showing up in a monster truck that says Loomis three sixteen. I want this. I, I want this more than anything. Now now that they're apparently making more Halloween for TV, could we get Stone Cold to play Loomis? Is this a thing we could just make a fan campaign for? It's like the he, gritty reboot we all want. He's the right age. Just, just fucking, like, hire The Undertaker to play Michael Myers and slap the mask on him and have him do all the same moves. Yes. Ironically, so the second wrestler that, that would have played Michael Myers. 
I think they need to go the opposite direction. Instead of like a big guy like Tyler Maine, they need to hire someone who's like five five, like a really tiny, sneaky Michael Myers. He's like a like a Chucky kind of thing. Like he's popping out a, a oh, a dwarf luggage. Michael Myers would be terrifying. Just small walking towards you. There we go. <laughs> As is Ronnie Yu's Halloween re- uh, reboot, <laughs> just really focused on height. These are all gold. Write these down. The strike's over, unfortunately, so he can't scan. See, that's why in, he but, killed uh, his sister and goes after people. It's, his sister was taller than him, and he was the only dwarf in the family. Snow White and the Seven Stabs. And then he moves to Italy and kills Donald Sutherland. Just for funsies? I just like combining dwarf things together. Look, I don't know if there's like a Don't Look Now reboot that's ever been planned, but why not? We could, we could, we could re-energize this franchise. I like the, No, can we please make Don't Look Now a franchise? <laughs> don't look now cinematic universe miniseries right. that's what everyone was asking for when they <laughs> hey we got the miniseries maybe miniseries exactly cast <laughs> zoe yeah. saldania again gender flip it don't look don't look now believer look i still need to see long. that and I, I i i will see the new exorcist i will see it as will i the the clip that was floating around twitter about the the patriarchy line i'm like oh boy that's pretty cringy that was a pretty bad line. Yeah, I, I, that's the only time I went, okay, maybe there is something to this, but we'll see. Right. Like, I thought, oh, come on. Everyone's being, they're just exaggerating everything. It can't be that god awful. The internet's being protecting the internet. a franchise they love. Yeah. And then that clip came out. I'm like, oh, boy. I don't know, man. This, this might have been a very bad interpretation of the original material. It's out of context. I don't know. I got to see it. I, I can't we'll, judge we'll yet. Say, I we'll know say, nothing. It, it's hard to separate whether or not people are just revenge reviewing the movie because of halloween ends. oh that's certainly a big part of it there are a lot of people that are like it's a zero star movie they killed halloween and it's it, that's fucking stupid uh but if the rest of the movie's quality matches that one leak clip i'm gonna have a hard time sitting through that thing mm-hmm. or it'll be a good comedy watch maybe we'll now we got two more coming so strap in i mean we've had some bad exorcist films so it's not the end of the world no matter what we all survived the multiple versions of the exorcist prequel so whatever, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders here. I'm not the biggest Exorcist fan in the world to begin with, so it doesn't hurt my feelings. I like the little mini, the little like mini mini bop that has decided to start this commentary. Yeah, are, are we keeping all of this? Good, wonderful. Yeah, folks, yeah. welcome. This is like when you're watching uh, the Friday the Thirteenth remake, and the fucking titles pop up like 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> uh, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Also, above all else, tonight. Big Ass Pumpkins. That's right. We're here with our annual Big Ass Pumpkin Day bop in a movie. This year, we'll be talking over The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Uh, I know, it's not the most pumpkin-friendly movie in the world, but it does have evil puking pumpkins and Jack Black, which is good enough for me. I'd say it has a stronger link to Big Ass Pumpkins than some of the movies we've selected for this festival. You know, yeah, I can't argue that. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody. Joining me tonight are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Just pretend you were off stage this entire time. You're you're now entering stage. Uh, hello, everyone. And then the studio audience applauds. I wish, I know he doesn't, but I wish Jack Black had his current modern age beard in oh, this movie one? instead of like the, the, like the Doctor Strange beard he seems to be rocking in this. I, I want the big, bushy mountain man beard that he has where he looks like he's about to uh give knowledge to he-man at any moment (laughs) mike you're asking for a wizard beard when he is clearly a warlock in this one i think he's wearing the correct sorcerer beard it's appropriate for the film (sighs) i know 
I see your point. It would be very fun to have a wild magic Jack Black, like a Gandalf Jack Black. We would love that, but it's wild it's not magic really Jack Black. That is just a that that is amazing phrase for some reason. Can that just be like his official title in the world? It felt good That's to how say he's introduced. Too. Jack Black <laughs> and the Temple of Skadoosh. The Magic Man. Also joining me tonight, Jamie. Uh, pretend you haven't been talking for ten minutes, Jamie, and, and now oh. you are talking. Hello, everybody. I didn't so, see you there. So, so do you think that in the pre-production to this movie, there was at least one meeting where everyone sat down and said, okay, how attached are we to the name The House with the Clock in Its Walls? Can we <laughs> just call it Clock House? <laughs> you know, I was really thinking that when I was like looking at my copy the other day while writing notes for this, like, God, half of making this, the struggle must have been just getting them on board with the name. It's it's a fine name. I don't mind it. It's like, ooh, that's interesting. Does not immediately pop, I would say, to families or probably a thing that a small child would be like, ah, it's the one I want to see. It sounds like it's the title of something that would do really well, but premiere on like Disney Plus. Yeah, it, it does kind of have like a streaming vibe to it. And I feel like oh. people don't talk about the movie as much. So it, just, it, it kind of disappeared like a streaming film. Yeah. Like I said the other day, like it's essentially a really souped up Disney Channel original movie. I could I could agree with that. And I'm I'm saying this is someone who really enjoys the film too. From the showrunner of the boys. <laughs> that was the funniest thing I found when I was researching this film. I, I was not expecting that. Isn't James oh. Vanderbilt one of the producers too? I don't remember. I don't have the list in front of me. I think so. Which is, I've I got don't... Wikipedia up. I could just look that up. Yes, yeah, he is. <laughs> I just love how it's a bunch of mature entertainments, essentially, uh, executives and directors and stuff who decided, like, why don't we make a G-rated movie? It's PG, but still, <laughs> it's it's oh, yeah. it's an odd group. I have uh, not seen folks. it, but I'm very excited to. I've always wanted oh, to. Oh, uh, jeez. I, I, I assumed you were going to get one pass in before we recorded this. We're going to ruin this entire thing for you. All right. Well, You finally get to see the yin to Goosebumps' yang. There we go. The, the, those would be a very good kind of double feature uh folks if you want to join with us we do have an official big ass pumpkin day 2023 drink i promise no malort uh i was very excited about this drink because for once i could stop making saw commentary drinks that are disgusting and make something very easy simple and doesn't taste like ass uh so without further ado this is an apple cranberry moscow mule uh and it mule is very loose here cocktail snobs are gonna laugh at this one uh Ingredients, very straightforward. You're going to need two ounces of vodka, a quarter cup of cranberry juice, uh, and then like a half can of sparkling apple cider. You could also use ginger beer if you want, but then it wouldn't be an apple cranberry anything. Uh, and then if you want to give it a little extra pizzazz, you can get a couple of cranberries and a sprig of rosemary. Uh, you can take the cranberries and the rosemary, muddle them up into the bottom of the glass, uh, fill that glass with ice, add your vodka, the juice, stir that all together so it chills out a little bit. And then just top with your apple cider. All there is to it. And then uh, if you want to be extra fancy, you can garnish with a rosemary sprig. Looks cool. Looks uh, looks like you care. Doesn't smell like gasoline in a diaper. Uh, I'm just so excited that it's not going to taste like ass. That's how you know it's a holiday. Uh, it's a drink. It's it's fine. Woo! Big ass, oh my God, big it's ass a drink. Yeah, day. we big did ass, it. Big like, day. Oh, I'm drink. so happy. Made it's a, a drink. Ah. <sighs> Hear that, kids? And then you take out the Malort and you just dump it all over yourself. You just fucking pour it over your body. No. Uh, 
Yeah, so there you have it. One one drink you can actually palate for once. You're welcome. That's my gift to you on this biggest of pumpkin days. Biggest assist. The biggest assist pumpkin day. Mike, uh, are you ready? I'll give you the honor this year of counting us down. Hey, don't I count down on every commentary? You normally do. Okay. I thought I walked to an uh, alternate dimension for a second. Jamie's cool. been doing it all the other times, and I just want to make you feel good. I'm going to gaslight uh, you. Now. What a poor Twilight Zone that would be. <laughs> you that one thing is different and it's very minuscule and now you're trapped me, in this universe different. <laughs> look we finally have the official bop branded mandela effect don't take this away from me <laughs> okay one two three fuck eli roth <laughs> great intro uh, it's out of the way so one one little fun fact here: the Earth is spinning in the opposite direction it typically does in the Universal's logo. That's uh, that's a little bit of a clue towards uh, the plot of the film. Spoilers, Mike. We've just ruined it all for you. It's uh, all kind of the Universal logo pops up. This was kind of fun because it was like the old Universal. I, I like that one. Uh, also, it's very fun every time you see Amblin pop up. I just immediately go into nostalgia mode. Yeah, ditto. That that Universal logo. To me, it's always like the logo of sci-fi films. Oh, yeah. Well, they, I think they were using that one up through, like, the Flintstones movie? Like, the oh, 90s? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always associate it with Army of Darkness. Mm, yeah, so that, yeah. I don't know when they swap, swapped it out. It's probably sometime mid-90s. Anyways, let's let's run through these movie facts. You're seeing the cast here already. It's scooping me. Uh, this was directed by Eli Roth. House Clock Walls. House Clock Walls. Uh, I have opinions on Roth, but we'll save those for later. You all know him as a pretty big genre influence. Cabin Fever, Hostels, uh, 1 and 2, The Green Inferno, Knock Knock, Thanksgiving. Uh, someday we're going to get that Borderlands movie. And he's produced a lot of horror films like The Last Exorcism films, Clown, Haunt. Uh, moving on! This was written by Eric Kripke, uh, the creator of both Supernatural and a developer on The Boys which uh, definitely shows you think of when you think of PG kids, spooky entertainment. Our cast, you can hear him talking now. We've got Jack Black as Jonathan Barneville. We've got Kate Planchette as Florence Zimmerman. Owen Vaccaro as Louis Barnevelt, who you're seeing on screen now with the goggles. Uh, and Hal McLaughlin as Isaac Izzard. That's fun. I, I wish he had a bigger role in the movie, to be honest, but it's great that he's here. Our cinematography is by Roger Stofiers. Uh, dude has an extensive list of TV and film credits, including John Q, School of Rock, and Disturbia, to name but a few. He's worked with Eli Roth on three projects so far, Death Wish, this film, uh, and Borderlands again, if that ever comes out. He did work on it. Our music is by Nathan Barr, who won an Emmy for Outstanding Main Theme Music in 2020 for the miniseries Hollywood. Uh... Dude has made so many great scores, <laughs> and for, for so many different genre flicks, too. We've got the original Cabin Fever, Hostel 1 and 2, uh, the Thanksgiving segment of Grindhouse. He did the Dukes of Hazard movie. Yeah. The Last Exorcism, the Flatliners remake, The Turning, which I will defend all of the music in The Turning. The soundtrack and the score were bangers for that movie, even though the movie wasn't great. Uh, he did From Dusk Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter, Beyond the Mat, um, and he's also, uh, if these ever come out, Salem's Lot and Borderlands, uh, plus the TV themes for Fear, Hemlock Grove, The Americans and Carnival Row. I wanted to mention Nathan Bart. Normally we don't get into the scores so much because I don't think any of us are super, super musically inclined. 
uh, and it's tough to talk about music when we're doing a commentary because no one can hear it. But the score for this movie is delightful. I really love what Barr did for this film. Uh, I'll probably touch on it more later because I still have a bunch of movie facts to go through and the movie's clicking along. But boy, does it sound pretty. It looks and sounds very pretty. Our editing is by Fred Raskin. Raskin became Tarantino's go-to editor after the passing of his longtime collaborator, Sally Menke. Uh, he was an assistant editor on the Kill Bill films. Then he moved up to co-editor on the Fast and the Furious 3, 4, and 5. Uh, he's been James Gunn's go-to editor on all the Guardian, uh, Guardian of the Galaxy films, The Suicide Squad, and the first season of Peacemaker. Uh, the release date on this was September 21st, 2018. Budget of $42 million, brought in 135.5 million, 131, I'm going to say that again, brought in $131.5 million worldwide. $10 billion. $10 trillion. Uh, The world was bankrupted. Uh, There were no Give us our money back, Jack Black, please. (laughs) Please, please. We're all poor. No one can afford houses anymore. Uh... Fun little fact here, this is based on a book series that was written, uh, written by Jean Belairs and illustrated by Edward Gorey. Uh, when this movie came out, I did pick up that first book. I gave it to my niece, so I wish I could have reread it in, in prep for this episode. But they're fairly different experiences. The book is a little bit more graphic. I remember a big part of the book is they actually get, like, a hand of glory, like the actual severed hand of a hanged man, <laughs> which becomes a very important plot that point in the awesome. film or in the book. Not not a part of the movie. Um, but anyways, there, there were 12 books in that series, starting with 1973's The House with a Clock in Its Walls, and only the first book was adapted to film. Huge shame. This one was successful at the box office. I would have loved to see some of those other entries adapted. And who knows, maybe it'll happen someday. But it yeah, I was happened. very surprised there wasn't, like, immediate plans on sequelizing this like they did with Goosebumps. Like, with Goosebumps, they... Like to to the sequel's detriment, they immediately rushed that into production. Yeah, that turned out pretty rough, but at least they got it done. Uh, also, I love the uh, vaguely New Orleans jazz man thing that Jack Black has going on <laughs> in this movie. I like that. I was, I was very surprised in the commentary for this, Jack Black claims he did not know how to play saxophone when they started making this film. Which is weird, because we've all seen clips of Jack Black playing saxophone-like things. Like, there's that toy saxophone he plays in, like, the Conan clip or whatever. Apparently, those were all afterwards. Like, he learned how to play saxophone during this movie. I think he said it, like, he brought his sister in at some point to, like, show him the ropes because she could play it. Man. I think the biggest thing I love about this house is just the production design or the film, not even the house, the house, everything in the house is gorgeous. If I could live in this house, I would die happy. You got your spooky organs, ornate staircases, living paintings, Kate Blanchett, just popping out of closets. It's everything you could ask for. (laughs) Well, what I love about the design of this house, and this was something on my mind when I was watching the new haunted mansion the other night, which is, This house is the version of the Haunted Mansion you actually want to live in. (laughs) One thing that's made uh, very clear by the new Disney movie is, okay, if you lived in a functional house version of the Haunted Mansion, that would really suck. Like, design-wise, that house 
is not really uh, conducive to actually spending any time in it. It's just a series of halls and corridors. Whenever you're a kid and you think, oh, God, what would the ultimate, like, spooky haunted house to live in be? You're pretty much imagining this. <laughs> I do love the little touches in the background, too. That setup of the joke of, oh, the paintings are alive. But Lewis doesn't know it yet. And Jack Black having to, like, sternly be like, no, shut up. Stop being magic. <laughs> yeah. I love those little touches. Uh, I, I love the interplay, too, between Black and Blanchett. Like, they... Both of them are the kind of actors that can make chemistry with any other actor. Like, they could be acting against a wooden board, and you should be like, those two should get married. It's it's fantastic, and putting these two together really sells the movie itself. Like, the cast is the lightning bolt that animates this whole film. Going back to what you were saying, Jamie, I, it's a bit of, like, a sticking point with me for a lot of location-based films that you just described, which is... The, the human mind, like, it can see when something doesn't make sense for in, like, a liminal space. Um, Kubrick used that for The Shinings, where he deliberately made things very subtly not make sense as a space, as a, as a place you could actually live. And I think the, when the audience senses that... Whenever it's supposed to be something like this, where it is something you're supposed to just feel at home in and it's supposed to have like a personality, you can sense it doesn't function as one and it's just something created for set pieces or for mood, which has a place, but I think it's, it's something that should be paid more attention to whenever you are putting a set together. Plus, boy, this it's it's loaded too with lights. Like there's candles all over this goddamn house. It looks cozy. Like they gave it a cozy look, just kind of that orange haze to everything. Fuck, man, I would take a nap in this place. Make it rain outside to be the fall heaven. One thing I will say though. Uh, it's a little bit of a bummer on retrospect watching this movie again, realizing how kind of stagnant a lot of the camera work is. Like most of this is the camera is planted down and then you get yeah. reaction shots back and forth. Uh, apparently a lot of this was Eli Roth said it was very difficult to film with child actors because they can only film so long per day and then you have to get a double. So a, a lot of the scenes with Lewis, he would kind of be acting by himself and he wouldn't necessarily have Jack Black or Kate Blanchett to work off of. They wouldn't have him to work off of. They would film all of his scenes first because he had the more pressing time schedule. And I, I think that does rob some of the chemistry with the kids scenes because he's not interacting with them directly most of the time. And it does lead to camera work like that where it's an interview, you know, just, okay, here's him. There's you. There's him. There's you. Yeah. That uh, was like, a I odd. like I said earlier, the movie has very TV movie vibes to it. And that like, uh, that that follows all the way down to Roth's direction, which is a very competent journeyman TV director here. I think it's one of the reasons why I really like this movie, but I never really associate it with Eli Roth or 
by uh, that director's oeuvre, because it ultimately does feel like a movie that could have been directed by anyone. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to shit on the cinematography either, because if you look at some of the, the compositions of the shots, I think there's some very beautiful ones. The one we saw just a moment ago with the moonlight coming in through those windows, you know, some of these sets are lit immaculately to really show off all the cool little nooks and crannies. Deutsch angles are like, great, too. And it, it's not like the camera is a stone. It's it's not Dracula 31. But you can tell there there's kind of a limit to some of the fancier pieces in the cinematography. They're, they're trying to keep it pretty simple for a majority of the film. <laughs> I want that clock. <laughs> Why aren't there more Satan cuckoo clocks? So that's kind of one of the subplots that comes across a little better in the book of Lewis is, is terrified that uh, his uncle is actually a murderer. Like he's walking around the house at night with an ax and the other kids at school warn him that the house is haunted uh, and that the previous inhabitants were murdered by an ax wielding lunatic. So all of these scenes kind of hint towards that, but you don't have the same, I don't know, backstory to really <laughs> support it. You don't have the internal monologue, so you don't get the anxiety. It feels much more kid-friendly and, more like it has to because the source material did that. I definitely see somebody looking at this script and going, okay, do we also need the axe murderer subplot on top of everything else? Excuse me. Right, and... Uh, uh, they're moving through this movie pretty darn fast, so they don't really have time to do all those extra little flares. You know, from this point, it's been, what, 13 minutes. We've already met all of our main characters, the magic house... Uh, we've been introduced to the fact that Lewis's parents are dead. There, there's been a lot happening here, and it's really flying. It can't spend time establishing backstory of like, oh, your dad or your new dad might also be a killer, especially since that's dropped pretty fast. They, I think by like next scene, it's already eliminated as a plot point. Oh, it's all a mad dash to that big ass pumpkin. This really does <laughs> need a little bit more of the flair of a series of unfortunate events. I feel. Well, well, like most projects, it requires more Robbie ML for that magic. His hands. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. During the commentary, they mentioned that uh, the studio pushed back on all the bullying scenes in the film. They wanted to basically cut out any instance of Lewis being bullied, which is... Strange, because then you'd have to get rid of, like, all of the school scenes. And it eliminates a lot of the conflict in, in, like, the drama of, hey, is he making a friend with the cool kid? But uh, I didn't understand why the studio would be in the space where they'd say, hey, we can't have bullying in a film with kids. Th Studios that is really a weirdly got allergic to bu bullying of children when it came to movies, despite the movies we grew up with hardcore featuring that to show that bullying is wrong. That's yeah, a weird thing. That, uh... Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's a weird uh, side effect of like the anti-bullying culture that popped up in twenty the 2010s, where it became a Voldemort thing immediately. We're like, no, no, no. Like we we have to have like an anti-bullying consultant on every script to make sure nothing that even looks like bullying happens. 
because that will inspire children. Yeah. The uh, the commentary, well, Roth's comments basically were, well, the studio pushed back because they were concerned on behalf of parents. Apparently the feedback they would get in test screenings was that parents don't like seeing bullying because they take their kids to movies to escape <laughs> the problems their children have in real life, which is strange because most of the time in these movies when a kid gets bullied it eventually works out where the kid becomes empowered at the end and you know, overcomes the bullying yeah it's it's self-fulfillment that's the that's the purpose yeah of it. right like this this movie doesn't work nearly as well if this is just a normal well-adjusted kid who also happens to just learn magic uh, we're really getting to like an actual larger subject of why it's actually important to have hard topics shown in film and tv i also think every character should be smoking like a chimney and coughing <laughs> the entire time that was the best thing about joker everyone's smoking in every scene <laughs> i want a movie to give me lung cancer guys. That's <laughs> right anyways this is what i was talking about before they're finally getting to the idea that the house he's in is haunted or creepy there's something wrong with it which just makes it a little backwards because we already had that opening scene where he got to be in the house and it seemed all right like he got cookies and Magically won card games. Plus, they, they don't they don't dwell on the subplot very long, so it doesn't really matter. It's just it doesn't turn into the shadow of a doubt. Included. No. Oh God, the glass house, but it's the house with a clock in its walls. <laughs> the house that Jack Black built. <laughs> uh, I, I should say too. One other little difference in the book is uh, the the character of Lewis is a little different in the novel. Like he's much more clearly the kid who would get picked on. Like he's overweight. I don't know if he does the goggle thing like this version of Lewis. I can't remember, but he, he gives off the impression of like stereotypical bullied kid. Whereas I, I don't necessarily get the same vibes off of this guy. We see that he sucks at gym class, but that's kind of it. What I don't like about this kid is every time I see him in the goggles, I think I'm watching the book of Henry. <laughs> Oof. God damn it, Diane. I would like to back up to the previous scene where they made a mention of the Minneapolis Lakers. And that's fun. I like that. Thank God. I think hey, it's a little sports fact. A lot of people don't realize the fact that the Lakers are called the Lakers is because they came from Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. I don't know why they kept the name when they went to California. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's how it is. San Diego Chargers. Bothers me. I just assumed they were always the Chargers. Look, if we're going to talk about nonsensical sports team names, we'll be here the whole commentary. I had to live uh, through ten years of the Mobile Mystics. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool, though. Oh, you have the uh, Mystics, uh, too? Oh, yeah, our mascot was a wizard. That's, That's cool. That's due to lack of interest. Oh. Uh, that was no, our hockey it, team. Our our WNBA team is the is the Mystics, because our MBT, NBA team is uh, the Wizards. They'll always be the bullets in my heart. Uh, in in Madison, we used to have the Madison Monsters, uh, which is kind of cool, but uh, not enough interest in that in that league, so it folded. We now have for baseball the Madison Mallards, but none. Even being an M town, we have never gone with the Mystics. I feel like we're missing out now. 
going to have a team named after a turtle. I'm still convinced the reason the Mystics never caught on down here was most of the Southern hockey audience uh, just assumed Mystics was some kind of satanic thing. <laughs> they changed it up. They're now the uh, Minnesota Mists, and at the end of every season, they all kill themselves except for the last guy. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets to be coached next season? He just he just sits on the field screaming in, in just, just the worst pain a human being has ever experienced. I recently rewatched the 4K of The Mist uh, in black and white, and boy, that ending still just hits you like a ton of bricks. That is a fun that movie end? to watch. Knee slapping, good time. All every every Ooh. single every single viewing. I still have a hard time with the spider parts. Me too. Way better in black and white. It, it's really amazing how the black and white gives off the 1950s monster movie vibes that yeah. uh, they were going for. That I somehow didn't pick up on really when they had it in color. It it covers the uh, so-so CGI, and you realize Darabont really framed that film as a 50s monster movie. But it, oh, because yeah. it's in color, you just don't notice, the, like, that's the way the camera work is, is aiming towards. 100%. Yeah, your brain just doesn't click on that. It's like, oh, of course, as soon as you see it in black and white with the correct balances, like, Jesus, yeah, okay, it's just them. Uh, okay, so this fireplace... Eli Roth got very excited and sent pictures of it to Jack Black when they were getting it put into the set. And Jack Black went, oh, I have one of those. I'm still not entirely sure if he's joking or not, but Jack Black <sighs> claimed to have that same monster fireplace. I believe it. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, there's a very similar monster kind of mantle uh, in... Uh, uh, oh, God, why am I... No, it's a live commentary. I can't go back and edit out my mistakes. No. Now everyone in China will know you're dumb. My memory is poor. Uh, we'll let this go. It doesn't matter. Anyways, we're getting to the point where he's realizing the house is alive. And I love all these little visual jokes. The stained glass with the lasso telling him not to go. That's great. The living armor trying to stop him. That gets more living armor in movies. Stairs. God damn it. Yes. So I'm a big fan of Harry Potter not having the monopoly on living paintings. I, I do not like the idea of uh, of that just being a thing completely related to that brand. I think this is great because we, we're used to the, uh, the, the trope that the house is haunted and it's alive. This version is the house is haunted. It's alive, but it's very friendly. It wants a hug. It wants you to it's, stick around and be buds. It's Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's, it's yeah, Mr. It's, McGorgon's it's Wonder Emporium. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, the complete opposite of the typical, <laughs> the haunting style of house. You know, Mr. McGorgon's Wonder Emporium ends with Dustin Hoffman giving a monologue to Natalie Portman about the way that uh, death is portrayed in Shakespeare plays. <laughs> uh, you know, I've never actually seen the movie so i i did not know that and that's the last I, movie walter white ever watched uh, that's all i could think watching granite state is just, he has to watch that scene over and over jesus christ it's possible it informs the finale <laughs> so you can see on jack black's face there's a mole which he said he normally has kind of painted out for his films but he decided as a wizard it made sense so they kind of enlarged the mole 
God, painting out a mole. Imagine if Val Kilmer painted out his mole. <laughs> Money on the table. Uh, and you can hear in the background, you kind of have like a weird theremin score going. There's, yeah, there's your hand of glory. Uh, and all these spooky relics. That's my shit. This is my jam. That's what I live for. Jack Black's Cabinet of Curiosities. Could you imagine a horror anthology, like a 70s horror anthology, where it's just Jack Black is the Crypt Keeper kind of guy? He's in a study somewhere and he slams a book shut as you walk in and he starts telling you a spooky story. I'd watch that. What was the name it's of on- the Vincent Price horror anthology? This was, I remember, originally so, so adapted for. Uh, I'm blanking because he was in multiple anthologies. Night Three. What the fuck? I remember. Uh, I've seen so many of them. Twice Told Tales. I don't think it was that one. No, Once Upon a Midnight Scary. Ah, the Comedy of Terrors. Yeah, that did. Uh, that did three. Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Ghost Belonged to Me, and House with a Clock in Its Walls. Is that? Oh yeah, it was a, a CBS Library special. Wow, I've never hey. heard of this. This is fascinating. I, I was going to say, I didn't know these existed. I wonder if they're on the uh, Screen Factory Vincent Price collections, because I know they had some of his public TV stuff. I've never looked to see if that's there. I Last time I watched one of those was just online somewhere, because they were in like, bad VHS quality because they weren't available. So That was before. Was probably probably taped on VHS and just left that way forever. Yeah. So maybe uh, they're on there. Oh, while I'm thinking about it, uh, I meant to mention this in the group chat this morning. Have either of you watched any of <clears throat> of uh, Frank Helda's Book of Spooks on HBO Max? I have not. Uh, not oh, yet, no. I was watching that over breakfast this morning. That is really cool. It's a um, like a, a basically Mexican tales from the Crypt Keeper, completely stop motion. Ooh, that's neat. Oh, and the, the, their crypt keeper is like this, uh, this super manic ghost girl. It's, it's like, it's like visually really stunning. It looks a lot like, uh, Del Toro's Pinocchio. I've never heard about it until today. How old is it? Like, when is it from? Uh, it was released in Mexico last year. I think it just premiered on. Oh, okay. So it's like a new thing. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely recommend uh, listening to it on Spanish audio because I, I tried both, and it seems to that's a little bit better than the dub they released. But it's I really enjoyed it. I think it's like up to six episodes now. Hey, look, he's reading House of Leaves. Uh, too late, we already <laughs> missed the joke. So typically in these films, right when there's a big CGI effect, that's one of the things that's put in first, and the movie's kind of designed around them because they want to show it off. Uh, in this case, they made the movie and the topiary uh, griffin it, it was just kind of walking around the background. And people were so interested in it that they, they went back and redesigned the movie to have more of this thing. Including uh, farting into the pool. Uh, they they use the griffin a that lot. That cost it's extra very, money. Yeah, it's very juvenile humor, but people were really into that. They wanted that shit. Oh, so this is very, very random, but I'm in love with the choice of wallpaper in this movie. Oh, it's beautiful, it's good isn't stuff. 
Trust me, I'm a connoisseur of appropriate uh, spook house wallpaper, and that, that that's a banger. Really, is that's my the kind of wallpaper house. that makes me feel like I could smell this house? Like I can just imagine the smell where I am right now, just how musty it is. It's perfect. Just random rooms smelling vaguely of cigar, despite the fact no one smokes. <laughs> All the furniture came from a billiard hall from like the 1920s. That George Carlin joke of you just walk in the room and you immediately know someone died in here a long time ago. <laughs> so one one kind of weird thing about the structure of this movie is, hey, it's our first look at Colin. Uh, oh, there he is. No, don't turn the page on us. Oh, wait, he's back and bigger. That what a handsome wizard. Uh, <laughs> one problem they have with the, the structure of this movie, right, is they have introduced... That there's a problem. There is a mystery. There is a clock in the walls of this house, as the title says. But the characters don't know what it does. They just know they have to find it. Which is weird because how do you how do you really like amp up the tension when no one knows what the stakes quite are yet? We know they're bad, but we don't even really know when the clock is gonna go off. Which is strange because it's like a built-in time thing, so you'd assume there should be like a much tighter schedule to everything in the movie. Oh no, he's becoming Mr. Hyde. Ah! I'm pretty sure they only filmed this just so they could put it in the trailer. <laughs> so yeah, he... To finish the thought about the structure. It's unfortunate because it does stick to what the book was doing. There, There is impending doom, but they're not really sure when it's going to happen. They know it's coming sooner and sooner, so they got to do something. It, but they don't really know what they're going to be doing or what they're preventing. And it, it unfortunately kind of, in the book and the movie, I think stalls things out a little bit, not having those stakes very clearly defined. Well, it's a movie with the plot of a thriller, but the tone of a movie about one crazy summer. Pretty much. And that's, I think, why it gets by, because you <laughs> have that to fall back on. Cut back for a second. Jack Black playing with imaginary fireballs was apparently a huge hobby of his. Like, he just really enjoyed <laughs> getting to juggle, like, imaginary fire. Uh, and just, that was his favorite part of filming. Where's my Justice League dark movie with Jack Black as Constantine? <laughs> Fuck, I'd watch that. Actually, I want him to, for it doesn't work, but give him the giant fucking Gandalf beard we were talking about earlier. <laughs> so in the commentary, Eli Roth asks uh, Jack Black, have you ever done a period piece? And Jack Black very seriously responds, I've done King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I've done the ultimate period piece. <laughs> you don't want to know how much money Peter Jackson spent on making period accurate New York City. This is a story for a different time, but boy, I still love Peter Jackson King Kong. I am not cheating oh. on that movie in any way. Oh, yeah, that's one day we'll do commentary for the uh, director's cut and spend an entire afternoon. Yeah, it's been a couple years since I've seen it, too. That'd be fun. Why Why was it, and I assume you guys had a similar experience growing up, why was it embarrassing when your parents, like, picked you up from school? Yeah, that's something that, su that makes perfect psychological sense at the time, that you can never unravel as an adult. 
Like, no, no, right, like, people will know I have parents and I'm not a ward right. of the state. <laughs> these, these parents pumpkin, that they see, big ass pumpkin, big ass pumpkins. Like, my friends knew I had parents. They would come over to my house where I had parents. Yet, for some reason, if they appeared outside of the house, it was like, oh, God, parents. Oh, your parents care about you. They don't make you walk home in the snow. That was the thing. Yeah, riding the bus fucking sucked. It was like an extra hour of my life. Why was I ever mad that, like, my parents would get It's like, yeah, I get to go straight home. Enjoy your fucking bus ride. Yeah. Yeah, I should say, it wasn't always like that, though, because my dad did have a motorcycle. So when he picked me up on the Harley, then I was like, I'm cool now. So maybe (laughs) it's about the mode of transport more than the person. Just in that motorcycle sidecar with the goggles and the cap. Just, I'm the coolest kid in high school. I told you guys that my dad uh, recently ran over a deer while he's riding his motorcycle, right? No. No, I don't think we heard that. Oh, so, uh, big segue from the movie. Uh, (laughs) He was riding his motorcycle, not the one with the sidecar, is his, like, fairly newish Harley, uh, to go in and get some electrical work done that he couldn't figure out himself. He was going, he said, about 60, 70 miles per hour, and a deer ran down the road, and he just slammed into it, because he didn't have any time to react. It went under the tire and basically got lodged between the tire and the frame and under the bike. Oh, God. Jesus So he's going 60, 70, and he hits this thing. Uh, And basically, he knows if he hits the brakes, he's going to get thrown off his bike and probably die on the highway, because I don't even know if he's wearing a helmet at this point. Uh, and, And so he just rides it out, like not hitting the brakes, just trying to keep the wheel as straight as possible without any herking, jerking, rides it off, and he ends up in the opposite side ditch. Luckily, there were no traffic, you know, incoming traffic or anything. Slides off into the other ditch and jumps off, and he didn't even go to a doctor. Uh, (laughs) He said his arm really hurt, and he smashed his phone. He's pretty sure the deer kicked him at some point when he was (laughs) trying not to die on the motorcycle. Uh... And that was it. He just he just crashed his bike, totaled the whole thing. The insurance company had to buy it out from him. Destroyed the frame. Somehow got kicked hard enough to, like, probably fracture something in his arm. Didn't go into the hospital. Uh, he went home and had a beer, which he used to drink a lot. Now he's like, eh, I don't really need to. So he had that for pain management. And maybe a gummy. I don't know. After he, he fucking turned a deer into Tetsuo the Iron Man? Mm-hmm. So now if he goes anywhere on his bike, he's going to have to use the one with the sidecar. That's the only bike he's got left. I like that this was the story you were telling as Jack Black did wonders. (laughs) All I can think is, like, that happened to your dad, and then I just, like, crash an electric scooter. Uh, one time my dad was riding out to California. He said he was going about 80 or 90 on the highway and his front tire blew. And he had a very similar situation where if he hit the brakes, he knew he was going to die. So he just had to ride out this bike, basically scraping down the highway at fucking 80 miles per hour until he's able to get into the ditch and jump off to safety. Uh, so what I've learned from these stories is I would die if I ever rode a motorcycle. My dad would probably be fine if it like it exploded. It doesn't sound fun at that point. At that point, it just sounds like uh, the the motorcycle is some kind of tool your father is using, like in a in a game against a death. Just <laughs> having a good time. It's all that matters. I was only going like twenty. I'm going to pretend a deer jumped out in front of me, though. <laughs> I'm going to say from now on, it's not like I know. So, 
Yeah, sure. Uh, it was good. a wild stallion loose on the road. That's it. Lucifer's hound itself. Uh, in the previous scene, while they're going through and just wondering at the, the planetarium that they've conjured, it's delightful on the commentary because Jack Black is just sitting there seeing this for the first time. He hadn't seen the movie with all the special effects added until the commentary. And he's just going like, wow, that's so cool. Like he is just fanboying out at his own movie. It's it's delightful how much he enjoyed the thing he was in. I love Jack Black. It's also a neat use of special effects. Like it's not the biggest thing ever, right? Like they, they just kind of projected some stars and some dust around. But they nail the thing that they're supposed to. Like all the characters react to this with such wonder and awe that it sells yeah. the effect. Which I, I think sometimes they forget to do in movies. Especially now with like the Marvel, hey, we've opened a portal to the sky and like no a fathomable amount of energy is going through. And everyone's like, hey, this has happened in three movies to us. We don't care anymore. Uh, it's hard for the audience to engage with an effect when the characters are so cool. They're like, eh, it's just a little bit of hellfire spitting out into the universe, whatever. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of that in uh, in our lifetimes is the original Fantastic Four movie from like 2004. Oh, when you said original, this, I was like, why well, are we talking the like the the 90s Castle one or uh, Corman one or <laughs> That has more wonder in it. Like I'm always fascinated by the, despite the fact that that movie still has lots of practical effects. It feels like everyone is on a green screen looking at tennis balls the entire film. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, we cut you off. What were we going to say about the, uh, the, was that it's just like everyone in the 2005 version feels like they're not looking at anything? Oh or? yeah. Yeah. It's just, a, that's always my favorite example. Cause that's, that's not even like from the modern era of every, literally everything being in front of a green screen. Like that's, it kind of just shows you how sometimes that just comes down to directing. So here the original joke was, if you watch the background, Jack Black flying up in the air. Lewis was supposed to slam his hand back down and knock Jack Black to the ground, like slamming him to the floor. And they decided, wouldn't it be a lot funnier if Jack Black just got stuck up there? Like that was Jack Black's idea. Like, what if I just couldn't get down? So they adjusted the scene on the fly to be like, okay, that's it. Uh, and then they spiral from there like, okay, and what if Cher came up to help you? But instead, he's an asshole and he just took an old-timey selfie. So there there was some good improv on the set and some very kind of ingenious, like, quick reworking of the film at the moment. Which has got to be hard when you are working with a decent amount of special effects. You know, because uh, just saying, hey, Cher is going to come in and he's going to go off screen and come back with a camera and he's taking a picture. That's entirely like a special effect. They did have like a a chair animatronic they could drive around, but that was most of the CGI one. You're adding a lot of money into the movie to do that kind of joke. So being able to still come in on budget and get those kind of things accommodated for is impressive. I will give Roth that much. I just like that black requested being in a harness for longer. <laughs> yeah, it seems like hell. As a kid, you think like, oh, it's gotta be fun to fly. And then you realize as an adult, like, they spent 12 hours basically being hung up by their balls. Oh, it's okay. My testicles went inside of me hours ago. <laughs> like, uh, Doug Jones, I think his last day on the set of Hellboy was him in, like, one of the healing tanks where he's suspended in midair. <laughs> and Del Toro's always joked about that. Like, yeah, so I, I hung him by his balls for, like, a full day in the tank. 
just for his last goodbye. So uh, we, we've kind of hinted at a, a disdain for Eli Roth. Uh, to, to people that aren't familiar with Roth, I would say part of that comes from uh, a dislike of some of his films. Like, I think Green Inferno is very bad. I don't like that movie at all. Makes me mad watching it. Uh, and a lot of it comes from allegations against Roth just being a general kind of creep or sex pest. Uh, you again, don't even alleg- need allegations. He just is kind of blatant about it himself. Yeah. And it's it's weird because you see, like, everyone he's worked with on this movie worked with him on a bunch of other projects. So he's got a stable of guys that are always very happy to work with him. But at the same time, oh boy, enough people have said this kind of shit to make me think, like, uh, Eli Ross should not be left alone at a bar. As the fact that he's irritatingly handsome in a very generic way that makes it seem like he can get away with things. He's well, shiftily handsome. Yeah. And he's he's been in so many important things for genre folks, too. Oh, uh, speak of the devil. There is the man himself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just producing a bunch of our favorite horror films or being in the horror films. Fuck, the fact that he's one of the main characters in Inglorious Bastards... As a genre guy, it's hard to get away from Eli Roth, which makes all the reports even more disappointing. Like, you want this guy to be cool, and uh, from a lot of reports, that's not the case. You want him to be cool, you want him to be uh, a better director than he is, (laughs) Um, you want him to not, outside the allegations, to just not be a douchebag, but quite frankly, he is. Listen to any interview with him. He's the ultimate name dropper. He will, he will love to tell you all of the uh, legends that he knows in the most egotistical way possible. Sorry if you're a big Eli Roth fan, but I, it's hard to overlook all of the other things once you get to the um, sexual misconduct. Yeah. And because we all know playing devil's advocate just means you want to be an asshole. Uh, if I knew Quentin Tarantino as, like, a good personal friend, I would drop that in every conversation. If I knew half the people he knew, I would do exactly what he's doing. That does not excuse anything else. I'm just saying I, I'd fall prey to the same exact... I'm not fall. saying I wouldn't name drop either. No, we'd all be assholes. Let's make that yeah. very clear. <laughs> but try sitting through his uh, last last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs interview. Uh, where he was or the history of horror. I felt like I was going crazy during the Joe Bob episode because I'm I'm seeing like on Twitter people basically stand out to be like, hey, this guy fucking sucks. Uh, and then the other half of Twitter is just like, oh, my God, Eli Roth is on the show. This is amazing. And they're like asking for him to be on more episodes. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I'm getting two completely different reactions from everyone on the Internet at the same exact time. I hate to be dismissive about any fandom towards an artist, but I When it comes to Eli Roth, it really comes across like a lot of those are people who really dug his movies when they were just getting into horror as teenagers, and they've never really been able to walk away from that. Yeah. Yeah, The same way that a lot of people still watch... It's the people who still watch the same YouTubers they did in middle school, and like they're like, oh, well, I don't care what Shane Dawson does, I'm, I'm ride or die still. 
The Wizard's Cup! To abruptly change subjects. Oh! So you can see the giant fireplace in the back. There's one... It's not the same, but it's very similar at the House on the Rock attribute... Uh, attribute? <laughs> attraction. There we go. Words are easy. Uh, in, in Wisconsin. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote about it in American Gods. Uh, it's it's a little similar. The, the one at the House on the Rock is big and green, like some sort of big demon. And the mouth is always open, and it's a whole way into another part of the attraction. It's very cool. Uh, it's my favorite thing to take pictures of every time I go to the House on the Rock. Also, haven't we all dreamed of having secret entrances in our houses, like pathways and stuff, like a game of Clue? Always. Oh, the Coraline the... kind of ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> that made it even better. You can go to the other side, and that place is way yeah, cooler spider than the spider, spider If it wasn't, if she wasn't a spider. Well, she's not quite a spider. She's some sort of sewing machine arachnid person monster. She's like eight things. No, I, I'm what, like Jerry in the movie, Smith in the, movie they call the, like the fake the universe where everyone's just shallowly nice to me. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah. Give me those buttons. God, my cat sounds like Keith David. <laughs> See? Yeah, a lot of positives of living in the other mother's world. So one day I'm just going to break down and use the uh, the existing pathways in my house to create secret pathways. Like, there'll be no way to go to the bathroom without going through a series of doors. <laughs> I've always wanted to put a bathroom behind a bookcase door. Ah. That all sounds great until you get home from a long trip and your body's like, you have to poop right now. And you're, like, fiddling around trying to get the door open. Yeah, but I know how to open it. I'm yeah, pretty sure it was a it's more of a riddle for everybody else. I'm still saying, like, sometimes when you got to go, you're just running the house. Like, you don't take off your jacket, you don't throw your keys on the counter, you just run. And if there's a door in the way, boy, things could get messy. I just want someone That's to it. ask me, hey, uh, where's the bathroom? You're looking directly at it. And then walk away. <laughs> First, and you must answer me these riddles three. And the best thing is it creates the mystique that maybe you don't poop. Which I'm I'm still convinced that's the reason my grandmother hides the toilet paper in her house. What? Oh yeah, the toilet paper goes in the laundry hamper under towels. Because Ooh. having toilet paper on the roll implies that someone in the house shits. Okay, someone There's my a mother whole does that. Going on. It's like we can't have Johns. We we can't show that the toilet paper exists. Because then, I guess, they'll know that we have butts. I, I'm very confused. <laughs> see, see, that's, what, why, that's why pooping at your house felt very welcome to me. It's like, oh, your family's insane, too. <laughs> uh, if I ever visit, I'm going to bring some, like, live, laugh, love signs, but I'm going to edit them to be live, laugh, poop. And I'm just going <laughs> to put those up before I leave. Graffiti it. <laughs> that's how you know I'm a good friend when I visit and then graffiti poop onto your walls <laughs> Jack Black saying uh, old timey words makes me so happy he's do that oh, my, Mike do you agree that uh, Jack Black is in full Anthony Stewart head this entire yes. movie <laughs> Just, just, just pouring over lost tomes, trying to figure out how to defeat Angelus. God, those two need to share the screen together. 
But I, I love the uh, the trope of best friends who mercilessly make fun of each other constantly. Just constant shit flinging. They do it so well in this movie. I, know, I would watch an entire film series of just these two solving supernatural mysteries like the Warrens. Exactly. That I'd be down for. Also, it's a little more open because, yeah, a demon is part of this, but they open the world to general magic tomfoolery. Whereas the Warrens are almost exclusively like, oh, there's a possession or a witch, which is basically a demon. It, it almost feels like they've limited themselves a little too much with the demons. It can stuff. only be things defeated by Jesus. Um, yeah. They only deal with also, God crimes. Also, according to that book, Dark Side is coming. <laughs> Dark Side is. Coming 2025, Jack Black is the escapist. <laughs> In a different universe, uh, that would actually be perfect. Oh, God. I, I was talking about this with my girlfriend uh, on vacation because um, we, we were in our hotel just flipping through channels and The Prestige was on. And I hadn't seen that in years. And it, it jogged my memory of the year where we just got multiple magician films yeah, that all had the same tone and were all about, like, dead women. I will... I mean, I fucking love The Prestige, but The Illusionist? I will fucking go to bat for yeah. that movie. No one ever talks about The Illusionist, one of the we greatest got, silly Norton performances. We, we got a Philip Glass score for that movie. It makes me want to cry it's so beautiful. I can't believe we just let that one disappear. One thing I will say for my ex-girlfriend, uh, when we were dating at the time, she was like, yeah, the procedure's good. You have to watch this one. I'm like, I had heard of The Illusionist, but I didn't know jack about it. She forced me to sit down and watch it. And I'm like, okay, that's fucking, this is fantastic. As a movie where magical Edward Norton conjures a hologram of Jessica Biel and weeps in front of an audience. A plus, wouldn't change a thing. I think the um, the animated film, The Illusionist, came out like that year. It was pretty close, two. I'm pretty sure. And, yeah, because I, I got those two mixed up. I thought one was the other for a while. And the Houdini uh, BBC miniseries with Adrian Brody. <laughs> I, I think that was shortly after. like writing That, that was titles. after, and that was History Channel. So oh, it God. was not as prestige as BBC. And don't bring up that movie. Who ended up with that DVD? Me. <laughs> I refuse to take it off my movie shelf out of spite. Good. I, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. It's got a 7.3 on IMDb. 83% of Google users like that show. 83% of Google users are wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying it was necessarily horrible. Oh, God. Speaking of the great Cody DVD sell-off from about eight years ago, where Mike was forever cursed with a copy of Houdini he didn't ask for, <laughs> I was watching The Frighteners with my girlfriend like a month or two ago and then realized, oh, we're watching this on Cody's copy. Yeah. <laughs> that was a weird, like, yeah. warm and... That was a weird, warm and fuzzy feeling. <laughs> like, oh, oh, boy. 
Happens to me every time I watch uh, Halloween three. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I sold that. I thought I gave that to MB. No, I got it. He MB got fucking Manhunter. Oh, that's pretty good too. Um, I should say this uh, this graveyard. An actual graveyard. They were in Atlanta. Apparently, there's only, like, one that you can really use for, like, a cool spooky graveyard in Atlanta. So everyone uses the same graveyard. Uh, and they did, obviously, bring in some of their own tombstones that were a little more spooky than the others. But, yeah, this was an honest-to-God uh, Atlanta graveyard they went out to. Plus a lot of smoke. They brought in a lot of fog machines. So Something I think is thing. missing from movies these days. I think more horror movies 100%. need fog-filled graveyards. More fog. Um, it's weird to think when you're dead and then a movie films in the graveyard that you're buried in, you can be a background extra. Hell yeah. But unpaid. Mm. I really think so. your family should get some restitution for that. I mean, I'd just be happy to be in the film. Pay the families of the dead bodies in Poltergeist, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, they probably have it coming. All right, so here's, I think I've said a lot of critical things about this movie, despite saying I like it. Here's the thing I really like. We have a good amount of darkness these kids are going through. Like, Lewis has dead parents. He just cut his finger and stuck it into a black magic book filled with necromancy illustrations. He's in a graveyard trying to resuscitate the dead. That's cool. I like the edge of darkness there is in a PG film. Which is something I would expect from Amblin. Like, you can't play it 100% safe. And yeah. I think Steven Spielberg recognizes that. We can tell from his output for kid-friendly things. Yeah, that tone was something I wasn't expecting uh, from this project. Because I remember this was very much advertised as if it was a Nickelodeon Studios production. I was kind of expecting more of the Spiderwick Chronicles from this than the movie we got. So I was very uh, pleasantly surprised by the tone. It's I know I was kind of comparing it to Goosebumps earlier just because of the Jack Black connection. But of any movie released around that time, I'd say it has more to do with scary stories to tell in the dark than that movie. Yeah. like If, there, if there's a, a spectrum with pumpkin, Goosebumps pumpkin, on one end. <laughs> Uh, we got like goosebumps on one end and demon night on the other. I feel like uh, House with the Clock on the Walls is like right here in the middle. Yeah, I mean it's still trying to be funny. It's 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 fairly light most of the time, but there are those moments. You've got the lurking impending doom in the background. It's 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 a kind of an odd hodgepodge, but I like it for that. It's it's more of the edge of fun horror, which is my favorite flavor of horror. Going back uh, to a minute ago, The Frighteners, very similar vein, where there's a lot of darkness in that movie, but it's also a very funny film, so it ends up being more fun than disturbing. God damn, do I love The Frighteners. Well, what makes The Frighteners magical are those handful of fuck the MPAA moments, yeah. where they make things unnecessarily disturbing and scary, <laughs> just because they're like... Well, we're not getting PG-13, so we might as well earn the R rating. Yep. The, uh, yeah, the R-rated cut goes a little further with, like, I think some of the Nazi stuff is only included in the R-rated cut, or, like, the unrated cut. So much of the ghosts just screaming into the camera. <laughs> God. 
Aren't we, aren't we supposed to have a 4K cut of the, the Frighteners already? Like, when's that coming? I want it now. No, we have to get the 4K restoration of the Super Mario Brothers movie out. We are getting that in January, so all things in time. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, our commentary made that happen. Ooh, maybe. I'll take that credit for no reason. Wouldn't be the first time. Mostly, I bet our commentary existed just to spur Umbrella to make a better version of the movie with four new commentaries so they can dispel everything we said. We're going to find out every factoid we said about the movie was completely off base, and they're going to have, like, experts come in and be like, well, those fucking idiots. The wackiest thing I've learned about that movie since the commentary was Almost Unreal by Roxette was written for fucking Hocus Pocus. Wow. That's really? Why the, 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 that's why the song goes, I love when you do that hocus pocus to me. That was oh. going to be the hocus pocus song. That Holy song was going to be, that yeah. song was going to be the identity of hocus pocus. <laughs> well, pumpkins, big ass pumpkins. Also, uh, understandably, Roxette was really fucking mad about that. <laughs> you put us on what movie? Uh, one Whistling jaunty about... tune. Yeah, it's the D. Uh, <laughs> I also love this joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the house is turning on us. Oh, no, evil's returning. <laughs> the saxophone, the too. The saxophone is such a nice... <laughs> such... But uh, one, one last thing about The Frighteners. Uh, when I first learned about that movie, I misread the title as The Frighteners. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I have been unable to shake saying The Frighteners in my head every time I it's think It's one of my favorite movie. things ongoing of this podcast is you occasionally saying The Frighteners. I will become I The ha- Frighteners. <laughs> <laughs> God, I wish. <laughs> Just fly up in the sky, covered in a cloak like Gary Busey's son. Uh, <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> you can't say that the Frighteners doesn't make more sense. It sounds cool as hell. Uh, but yeah, I still to this day, every time I think about that movie, the first thought is always the Frighteners. I have to stop myself and be like, hold it, hold it. We got to fix that one. Frighteners. I'm doing quality control every time I talk about that movie, just to not sound like the world's biggest idiot. Yeah, you can't, you have to say it the correct way, which is a random thing Arlie Ermey's character says at the end of the movie. <laughs> you gotta put the Frighteners on them. <laughs> that that line that reeks of, we filmed the movie and realized in editing no one says Frighteners. Yep. <laughs> God damn, I do love the Frighteners though. I've got such a soft spot in my heart for that film. Oh, this is Granted, fucking random. The, the CGI is a little funky and all that these days. Hey. Anyways, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just saying, Surface Man is still impressive all these days. Like. <laughs> but uh, I remember that being one of my favorite behind-the-scenes TV specials was Inside the Frighteners, where half of the fucking documentary is just about doing the uh, the special effects on Jake Busey's absorbing man powers. <laughs> they were like, they were really fucking pushing things for the times. Like, 
man, Peter Jackson always had an eye towards technical innovation, and they, they were really pushing it on a horror movie, no less, like a horror comedy, those things that never make money. And didn't. Yeah. I, it's I mean, still... it didn't stop him. It worked out. It's just so bonkers to me that despite the fact that the Frighteners didn't make money, it was still instrumental in Jackson and company getting the Lord of the Rings because heavenly creatures proved that they were good at making movies. The Frighteners just proved that they could handle special effects. So it making money was completely irrelevant. Well, wasn't part of the deal with that too? That was when Peter Jackson really started Weta, wasn't it? Yeah, like he was, was he was doing some of his own effects for that movie in, in tandem with ILM, if I remember right. Um, so, I, to get, I, I might be getting the timeline wrong. I think Weta was started for the first bite at King Kong that didn't happen, and then using what what they had built from that aborted project, they uh, they were doing the Frighteners. I think. Okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's starting to think like too. Even then, because that was that was. What, like a fucking, I think he was still in New Zealand for that too. Like, I don't think they broke him of New Zealand at the time. I don't think he came to America to make that film. Uh. So it's still wild that he, somehow Peter Jackson apparently convinced everyone, like, you must do what I say. And they go, yes. Like he's some sort of hypnotist. Oh, one of my fa- that's one of my favorite Bob Shea stories is him getting off the plane in New Zealand, walking into Peter Jackson's studio. And being surrounded by posters for Meet the Feebles and brain damage and shit and going, oh, oh no. This guy must put so much sugar in his coffee. This is a mistake. (laughs) Another little nice bit of darkness there. The bone key. I'm so sad. A few years back, there was a prop auction for a lot of the pieces of this film. And the bone key was like one of the hero props they were, they were auctioning off. And I knew I couldn't get that because that went for a crazy amount of money, but I was trying to bid on, uh, some of the posters and whatnot you see in like the background of the film. And even those, I thought I had a chance cause I like bid down a hundred bucks. I'm like, Hey, no one else is bidding. Cool. And then the last day someone came in and just fucking sniped everyone and put like fucking $500 down for, you know, Images like photos you would see in the background for one shot. So I, I got cleaned out. I didn't have a shot. It turns out at buying anything from this movie. I tried, couldn't get my hands on it. It was Augustus Saint Cloud. <laughs> it feels that way. I feel like I got swooped. Eli Roth is a friend. <laughs> Did you see that um, Freddy's glove from the first Elm Street is uh, going on auction? I Ooh, did. Yeah. Really? How much is that going for? Afraid to look. Uh, More than anything we'll ever see in our lifetime. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought I saw a number, but uh, my brain blocked it out. Because, like, you don't have the money for it. Go away. Well, the worst is whenever it's too expensive for you to reasonably buy. But, you know, if you gave up everything, you could afford it. Right. Like I have That's what I was afraid somewhere. of. That's what I was afraid of. It's like, do I want to rebrand myself as the woman who owns Freddy's glove? Is that what I want my life to be? The winning bidder is also receiving mechanical special effect coordinator Jim Doyle's original hand-drawn schematics for the glove, rendered in pencil and ink on graph paper. And 
two letters of authenticity. Uh, this uh, this was as eight hours ago, according to Blade Disgusting. God damn, what a hit. Uh, the current Epstein bid for this incredible piece of history is already over $100,000, with bidding scheduled to end Thursday, November 9th. We can do it, guys. The nice thing is, like, the glove is actually in good shape. It's not like most of the props I look at where it's latex yeah, foam that is turned into some sort of how good that looks, horrific yeah. monster. <laughs> it hasn't become Hoggle from the from Labyrinth. I kind of like you? the idea of buying a Hoggle, though, like just to have in some sort of glass prison that it can never be removed <laughs> from, lest he deteriorate further. I want the cowabunga it is head, goddammit. Yeah. I do have a uh, signed Freddy glove. Oh, I forgot. That's pretty, that. but that's pretty baller. Yeah. It's, so you have uh, a signed Freddy glove. Don't you have the, the Kane Hodder mask, too? Yeah, and the Kane Hodder mask. I've been meaning to put them together to uh, do it's a too Freddy much power, Mike. Jason poster. So the glove is clutching the. Uh, oh, that'd be mask. baller. I need, you like, gotta, you gotta get. You gotta get Nick Castle to sign something like a butcher knife. Just put them all together. Ooh, yeah. Oh, and then I get wizard powers. I've, I've yeah. done the Trinity at that point. Uh, that's that's what opens the lament configuration. Well, you already got quote tweeted by Darcy before the last drive in the other <laughs> night. So like, there you you're go. Crackling with electricity. So. Darcy had a very relatable moment in the last drive-in episode where <laughs> Joe Bob asked her, what did you think about getting killed in a Halloween film? And she's like, there could have been more blood. And just imagine, like, you don't want to seem ungrateful because you get to die in a Halloween film, which is the coolest thing in the world. But you kind of get killed in the background. And it's like, no, man, I signed up for the blood. I wanted to see, like, my tongue cut out and put on the record player. I wanted to get my fingers ripped off. If you're signed up to die in a horror movie, you really want to bite the dust. You don't want to be the oh, guy yeah. who dies you want off your, screen. You want your head fucking pulled off. I will forever be angry and resentful, much as I love Halloween Ends, that we do not see Darcy die. They filmed we it, know, they we, did they not show it. it. She's kind of in the background struggling. I think you get that much if memory works, right? No, I like, think she's already dead. Maybe she originally, like, get into the wall and the head bob thing happened and all that. Picked yeah, I, for some reason I was recalling it as, like, you, you see basically the dentist, or where the fuck the guy is, uh, in his room, like, taking a phone call or something. Dentist? Why am I saying dentist? I'm thinking of the wrong character entirely. <laughs> this is not helping my, uh, my cred. Uh, the DJ basically doing his work, and you see her struggling in the background against, like, frosted glass. That's how I remember it anyway. I see that, yeah. Also, to regretfully take the conversation away from Darcy for a moment, <laughs> uh, in an era of 80s nostalgia oversaturation, doesn't it feel nice to see a whole bunch of 50s childhood jokes smacked at in the middle of this movie? And the the acting of the background extra kids, too, is wonderful. If you watch these kids, they're hamming it up so much. It's so fun. <laughs> Like that kid in the background is just staring him down. And if they notice him, he like jumps and kind of looks the opposite direction. Like there's not a lot of subtlety in what they're doing. And that's what I love about it. It's, it's very much amped up kid acting. More Uh, more period pieces uh, uh, in this genre. I would like to say. It's just so fun. uh, with, With stuff like looking at stuff like that as people from our generation, where there's a kind of a secondhand nostalgia to shit. Like, Oval teen decoder rings and kids in malt shops just because yeah. of residual 
residual nostalgia from our from our childhood experiences of experiencing somebody else's nostalgia. Well, it's like growing up for me, it was constant bits of like Gilligan's Island or those kind of shows set during earlier time periods. So you get like the idealized version of the past and then your parents talking about like the good old days. So you you get this wonderful sense of pumpkin. You get this wonderful mm. sense of nostalgia for this made up version of the past. It, it's the same feeling I get every single time I watch a Christmas story. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, that wasn't exactly how it was like, but my dad swears, that was my childhood. That is it. There, That was it. That's exactly how it was. And because you watch that 5,000 fucking times every Christmas, you just yearn for it. I think that's kind of the magic of any art that's able to capture a little bit of how a certain flavor of childhood felt, even if it's in no way capturing the reality of the situation. Mm. Like, obviously, like, you know, there's a, there's a negative side to that, but there is something like really magical about like those handfuls of like movies or TV shows that are able to capture. Like, okay. This is what it felt to know nothing in 1955. <laughs> this, is, this is how it felt to still think the world was okay in 1988. There's to me, that's the ultimate escapism. If I go back and watch Gilgan's Island, oh man, because you know the truth. Like if you were on a deserted island, how much it would fucking suck. But luckily, they did theirs on like a studio lot, so all the trees are fake and that kind of shit. You know, just, you know, uh, Marianne has gone full yellow jackets like six months into that the situation. Right. Yeah. It's just it's such a fantasy feel good kind of fantasy, even though it's like, oh, we're stuck on the island again. It's like you guys are living a much better life than I am in the current day right now. You're good. Don't worry about it. You have a radio made out of coconuts. It's fine. Gilligan's Island really is my ideal existence. I used to it think kind of is. Yeah, like, it seems fun, because they don't have to deal with, like, mosquitoes or anything. Like, the most is they'll go through the jungle, and they'll be kind of annoyed because it's hot out. But they don't show them sweating. They don't show them, like, dealing with scrapes or bruises or hunger. There's a couple of episodes that go around like, hey, we might run out of food because there's, a you know, a shortage of rain or whatever. Yeah, but it works out. Like, 30 minutes later, they're like, oh, good, now we have 10,000 fish by us. We're good. I think that's why every boomer had the experience growing up of realizing Gilligan wanted them on the island the whole time. <laughs> Gilligan <laughs> wouldn't have survived outside the island. They would have murdered him in some sort of factory. Like somewhere there was like a, a 1970s Matt Pat going, whoa, what if Gilligan was behind it the whole time? <laughs> I'm just saying, if Gilligan, Island, if Gilligan had to work off the island, he would have been accidentally, aka one of his coworkers who hated him, would have thrown him into like a wood pulper. He would have been murdered on on any factory floor. He would not have made it a full week. The uh, he would have been the only place where he could have survived. He would have been taken out on a boat and shot Fredo Corleone style. This is why we love Gilgan's Island. It's that fancy place where all of us screw-ups could live and maybe even thrive and maybe have the island named after us. I was really more of a Gilligan's Planet fan, to be fair. <laughs> See, I think that's why a Gilligan's Island remake would never work, because the instinct would be to make it gritty, 
and that would suck all of the fun and life out of that project. Could you imagine a Gilligan's Island where they're actually desperate to get off the island, like, and facing real drama and death? I remember when Lost premiered, everyone was making Gilligan's Island jokes because even in at like two like two thousand five, that was still the only other island TV show anyone had reference <laughs> that and Fantasy Island. Can uh, Can Gilligan's Island be the next season of that uh, Daniel Radcliffe show? <laughs> oh I feel like God, the tone Miracle of Workers? that would work perfectly. Yes. That could work. That could work. I need, I still need to see the apocalypse version, the Mad Max one they just did. It looks very fun. I do like this little bit they're going into here, where Jack Black is the wacky fun uncle who has to take care of a kid, and boy, does that freak him out being responsible for another human life. And this to a movie- small degree, I feel this way every time I have to, like, babysit someone's cat, like, when they go on vacation. <laughs> like, what do I have to do with this thing? What do I, what, do I have, does it have enough food? Or hold an egg. I, I, my persona's for amusement, not care. <laughs> yes. So I understand Jack Black's struggle here. Makes for good drama. I like that this movie is essentially Uncle Buck if John Candy were a fucking wizard. <laughs> Wait, that's a wasn't? good formula. It works. He makes a magically see... big pancake. I will say, did you see the size of those pancakes? Those no normal man could make those. <laughs> oh, just just for another brief diversion, Cody, have you ever seen footage of the Uncle Buck sitcom? <laughs> no, I have not. I'm assuming John Candy was not in it. No, it's it's so it's like a fucking a creepy pasta or something. It's like this. I think it was made by Fox in the early 90s. And it's like a dude who looks like he's playing John Candy on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Just doing a John Candy impression. It's really fucked up. (laughs) It it does sound kind of amazing. Talk about the actual movie. This is one of the spots I really actually don't care for. This very convoluted plot twist we're about to witness. Sorry, Mike, for the minor spoilers. Uh, The neighbor lady was in on it the whole time. And so all of her asides, her comedy asides, were her playing a character. That's what drives me nuts. The the fact that we have moments where the main characters aren't on screen that cut to this woman. And she's like, oh, what a bunch of kooks, weirdos, to no one but herself in the audience. And it turns out she's been one of the evil wizards the entire time. Like, it's a cheat. It's a cheat, goddammit. It makes me mad. It's bad. Yeah, I don't like twists where it's, um, we're lying directly to the audience instead of it making logical sense within the context. And that's, that's what this is. So, I hate this bit. And it, it's such a convoluted way, too, where apparently their master scheme was she was going to live across the street so she could spy on the house, even though they didn't really know what she looked like, and she could have been anyone. Because it wasn't their house. That was the thing, right? It was Izzard's house. It's it's just frustrating. It's like, it's fine. You don't think about it in the moment. But it drives me nuts. Like, why why are we going to all this? And what was the purpose? So she could open the door to let the wizard in? They didn't okay. even establish that the house is, like, so magically blocked that he couldn't open the door himself. They just established that there were spells on it. But they also tell you that Izzard's a stronger wizard, so he probably could have broken in anyways. 
It's another one of those weird, like, unnecessary plot twists that seems to be in a screenplay because, well, we need another thing to happen. I mean, it allows them to do this big flashback, too, that explains things a little bit further. But I don't like it. It's like, uh... At that point, you're writing story so that plot can happen. Yeah. I do love this bit of darkness, though, where they admit, like, oh, no, we killed the neighbor lady and used her bones to make that key. I like how direct that is. Like, that's a very disturbing moment for a child, I'd imagine. Also, they're so evil, they have to show off that they were teasing him the whole time, plotting behind his back. I don't know. Some it, it's movie writing. I understand you have to introduce some drama, so I, I can't get too mad about this part. But the neighbor lady and breaking the the truth of the film bothers me. I hate that. Yeah, I'll, I'll die on that hill. To go back very far, when we're talking about Halloween, I recently picked up the novelizations for Halloween 2018 kills and ends. So I'm very excited to read through those and see how different they are from the movies. I I, I have to assume Halloween ends, the book probably gives a little bit more uh, screen time to Darcy's death. So I'll get it there if I can't get the real thing. <laughs> I like the idea of Darcy being such an important pillar of the modern horror community that her fictionalized death will have paragraphs describing it. <laughs> Like that exists across a multimedia experience. Are you mad? I am your daughter. <laughs> We're getting that on Criterion uh, sometime this month, which is fascinating. Ah, really? Uh, I'm always amazed what Criterion pulls out for their Halloween things. Because normally I expect it to be some sort of horror film from the 50s, and then when they're like, hey, we got The Others. It makes me feel really fucking old. <laughs> that movie scared the shit out of me, just from, like, the trailers as a kid. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, I could not watch that trailer as a kid. God, every horror creature made post the 2000s versus... That little girl with the fucking sheet over her face. <laughs> I am your daughter. Ah! <laughs> no, when I finally watched it, it, really was that twist that freaked me out uh, as, a, as a young child. I that guess, is... Like, 10 that or whenever it came out. I remember that getting a lot of grief b because it was in the era of every movie having a twist like that. But man, the other's twist goes really fucking hard. I, I really love that. I hate to interrupt, but I just can't get this out of my head. This is essentially a scene from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> <laughs> Secret of the Cow McLaughlin's old age makeup. Again, it's 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 so fun when you see Agent Cooper in things. Uh but this was such a kind of a small role that it's a bummer they got such a big name. Like he's underneath old age makeup for a majority of it. And Unnecessarily, it feels like. It kind of does, yeah. Like, why is he under all that age, old age makeup? 
I would push it even further and just make him more of a corpse instead of like an old man. Yeah. I do love the fact that we're getting a flashback to him meeting Satan mm. in this PG film. <laughs> this stood out to that me in the theater watching this, and I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm a little surprised they're going this far with the Satanism in this film. All right, cool. But the bullying was where the studio... Uh, yeah, that on. was the thing they wanted to cut. They, they didn't mention anything about wanting or needing to cut any of the Satanism. Well, that's just protecting children. Yeah. All right, so we're finally getting to the plot here. He sees World War II and all the other shit coming, and he's like, ah, we should not have that. Let's just rewind time. A silly plot, but at least we finally have it. Also, it's not even quite Kyle's voice because they have a modulator on it. There's so much they've added on top of his performance, we don't quite get the man himself. Which is a shame because I feel like there's a lot you could do with them. Just see the ending of uh, the second season of Twin Peaks where he's playing Evil Coop. Like, you could get this guy to be a very scary villain if you wanted to. And they're having him kind of ham it up and hiding him underneath all this latex. I still don't understand why he did, he wasn't really that old in the flashback. No. Yeah, I don't I don't really get why they went old old man. Maybe maybe it was part of the idea that that's why he wants to rewind time so he can be young again. I don't know. So I don't he think can be prime Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, I mean, well, who wouldn't want to be? Showgirls era. Twin Peaks era comic lock. Just, just one of the most handsome guys to exist, right? In my opinion. I, I don't think too many people would argue with me. That's a good looking dude. Also, uh, by the time I reach his age, where he was like in Twin Peaks The Return, I hope I'm in that good of shape. It won't happen. I'm not in that good of shape now. But I am a little jealous of his uh, physique. I mean, if we're talking... Uh... Rhyme, Kyle McLaughlin. I personally would have to say Firewalk with me. Mm, okay. Still generally in that era, but with a couple of years on him. Immature. Fair. I keep waiting to get... To, for them to get to the evil pumpkins. And I know it's coming, but it's like, come on, come on. <laughs> it's why we're here. That's right. <laughs> Got like 20 minutes left. Hurry up and get to the pumpkins. This is random, but it, it makes me very ah! happy. Ah! 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 Oh no, it's that scene in the Tommyknockers. I like that being like Sal Satan there. <laughs> uh, I love that we're at a point in motion picture history where Kate Blanchett can be in movies like this. <laughs> More of that, there, please. There, there was a time when we only got a little bit of Kate Blanchett. You know, her her being in stuff like Lord of the Rings was was almost like her slumming. This is before she was melted uh, in El Dorado under the weight of all of that cosmic knowledge. <laughs> it's a shame we don't see her in more genre stuff. Like, we've gotten her in a good number of franchises, but it's like, it feels like she's having fun in these roles, and she always brings so much gravitas to everything she is in. 
It feels like uh, Kate? it feels like people are afraid to ask her to do it. Maybe or they just never do it. Kate Blanchett has that Christopher Walken quality where I feel like she was only doing prestige stuff for the first half of her career because she seems like that's what she'd be into. Pumpkins. She just wants go. to be in the in the country bears this whole time. <laughs> That's the dream. You pay your dues to all these Oscar winners, and then you can fuck around with uh, a house with a clock in its walls. Evil At pumpkins. Last. Evil pumpkins. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. It's a big ass pumpkin day. Everybody! What do you think the odds Honest? are, like, if we if we contacted, like, Hate Breed or something and got them to do a cover of Big Ass Pumpkin? <laughs> there's there's got to be some sort of cameo where you can do, like, a fiver. Just get, like, a rock band of uh, unknowns. God, death metal, Big Ass Pumpkin Day. Darkness, Big Pumpkins. <laughs> Tear up the guts, cut out the eyes. Uh... Just going ham on these pumpkins, too. Just obliterating them. So, yay, we got Kate Blanchett saying, I hate jack-o'-lanterns. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> something about carving pumpkins, too. Like, I do it every year. I have fun with it. But pumpkin guts as a kid, I almost would have to throw up just, like, dealing with them. The the feel of it, the smell uh, of them. The worst the whole texture thing. ever. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pumpkin guts is one of the gnarliest things God ever created. Yeah, and yet every year it'd be like, okay, kids, let's line up. Did you have fun at the pumpkin patch? Be like, yay, I can't wait to throw up later carving this. Whee! Oh, it's like the experience of getting stabbed by pine needles while dealing with a Christmas tree. Yeah. We're always so quick to forget uh, all the horrible physical side effects of our holidays. So uh, this last weekend, it was the Nakusa Giant Pumpkin Festival in my hometown. I went to go see that. Uh, and every year they take a giant pumpkin and they lift it up on a crane like 40 feet above everyone's heads and drop it down. And I learned a couple things. One, uh, when they drop the pumpkin and it bursts on the ground, all the kids run out and start scooping out the guts. And I had been under the impression for years that they had bored a hole into the pumpkin and filled it with prizes. Like there were little plastic Easter eggs filled with cash or something. And that's why the kids were so excited to run out there and, and scoop through the guts. I was informed this year there's nothing in the pumpkin besides pumpkin guts. And when that pumpkin smashes on the ground, all the children are running out to the pumpkin corpse to try and find pumpkin seeds so that they can attempt to grow their own giant pumpkin, which is not how that works. Ah, that's like a Stephen King novel. Those kids are just running back with pumpkin guts all over them and some seeds like, yeah, I'm going to make my own. Like, it's not. No, those people put so much care and work into their pumpkins, Johnny. You're not going to be able to replicate success. Oh, they're all crazed with pumpkin guts mania. They're livid. They're just, they, boy, I wouldn't get in their way. They'd eat me. The thing, though, is these are really giant pumpkins. The one they put up this year was uh, 1,800 and change. It was close to 900 pounds. Uh, and apparently this one was volunteered because it was ineligible for actual pumpkin weighing contests. When I was there, they they weighed the pumpkin. Uh, but the owner came out ahead of time and announced that this was ineligible because about a, a month ago, it had developed a hole that he had plugged with wax. 
<laughs> to allow it to continue to grow. Pumpkins! Ah! Uh, so the idea is competitive pumpkin growers aren't allowed to make holes in their pumpkins for obvious reasons. They don't want them, you know, dumping a bunch of lead or something inside of their, their produce. So uh, this guy who took second place last year, apparently, had to admit that his pumpkin was a cheater. So they waited anyways just for, for giggles before they hauled it up on the crane and dropped it. God, the Billy Mitchell of the competitive pumpkin world. Yeah, I think we had a pumpkin that was 2,200 pounds, uh, which seemed impressive. And then I went home and saw that a pumpkin in California won like a new record at like 2,700 pounds. Also, while I was there, they had various other produces that had been grown. Like they had a watermelon that was 120 plus pounds. Uh, someone set a world record with a tomato that was just under 12 pounds. If you can imagine that big of a tomato. So it's, it's nice to know the farmers are out there having fun. Uh, I'm just imagining you going to some kind of Wisconsin family, like, like, county fair that's entirely based around giant vegetables that's very much what it was yeah they had uh some rides you know for kids like swings that go off the ground and spin around uh fried foot-long corn dogs and oreos that kind of shit it was very much just a family fun fair based around growing really big pumpkins A legitimately creepy part of the film, all the automatons. Those are wonderful. Very well done, very spooky. Which is nice. I feel like if you want a successful horror comedy, you do have to also bring the horror out. You can't kill it by making it funny. There are jokes so, around So many these. make that mistake. Yeah, there's definitely jokes around these. But the automatons themselves are creepy. And for a kid's movie, they still represent real danger. So I, I think those were very well done and smartly tread that horror comedy balance. Automatons a lot of films don't I, do that. They just figure. Uh, automatons are why I find Hugo to be a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Slappy! This movie definitely gets a lot of credit for creating an environment where by the time you do get to the third act, you feel like a motherfucker could get dropped at any moment. <laughs> It gets, yeah, it gets progressively creepier. Uh, the danger does rise, which is good. I mean, it would be hard to do that early on, considering we don't really know what the mystery is, and they can't spend all their time building foreboding doom in what's also trying to be more of a kind of a coming-of-age fun magic story. It's a little bit Harry Potter at some points. Like, by the end, oh, there's Voldemort, but at the start, it could be like, cool, we get to learn wizard stuff. Leave her to our octopus, pal. Jack Black getting to play with more magic fire. Coming up here in a few minutes, there's a thing I just assumed was all CGI when I saw the movie, but it turns out they actually made a puppet version of Jack Black to do. And I, I'm just so impressed when I see that behind-the-scenes footage to realize what they actually were able to handle practically. It reminds me that uh, sometimes I'm wrong about special effects. Like, you just see something and you go, oh, man, that CGI just looks so clunky. And then someone tells you, like, that was an actual man in the Predator suit in that scene. And then you just feel like a real dumbass. 
I think part of the problem is we're conditioned to think everything is CGI because it's yeah. true in a lot of movies. Or even when there is a cool practical effect, it gets painted over with a lot of CGI that hides the fact that there's something real in the scene. Uh, I think it's a big problem in some of the later entries in the Fast and the Furious movies where they'll do an amazing car crash for real. Like on a crane, they'll smash a car through a city uh, and then they'll add so much CGI debris around it and little flourishes that you forget that the underlying effect is real. Like you can't even notice the practical part of it. All right, here is the effect coming up. He's dead, Mike. Dead. Good. I didn't like his beard. Good. He could have had a wizard beard. <laughs> He'll be played that by Kyle Gass for the rest of the movie. <laughs> All I can think of is Hellboy 2, the, the Golden Army, when I see these levels of clock gears. Um, but here it is. This Jack Black uh. head with a little baby body. Obviously, parts of it have been like CGI'd, I think, but they, they actually made like an actual animatronic with a real moving Jack Black head. I hope they burned it after filming. <laughs> you need to, to go look it up. I think Horror for Kids, their Twitter account, occasionally posts some of the behind-the-scenes features. And it's stunning how, how well that animatronic Jack Black head worked on top of the little baby body. I just assumed I, the entire thing was fake. I want baby head, uh, baby body, big head Jack Black to talk to baby body, big head Pennywise. <laughs> they do a podcast together. Yeah, and they both melt into the ground. Best friends forever. So, yeah, maybe one of the things that would stop an older person from enjoying this movie is the amount of juvenile humor here. Like, we've got there was baby a lot. man, Jack Black pissing. We have the Topiary Griffith shitting all over things. It's, it feels very it's, tacked on. Some of it, yeah, it does feel a little silly. Uh, but I'm also not part of the age group for the movie either. Like, I think this would be much more interesting if you were nine years old or something like that. True, but even as a kid, I did not like body humor. Too, too educated, too refined uh, for Mike. I feel like potty humor is always adults thinking that's what children like. I don't know. I had a niece once who really enjoyed calling me a fart face. So I, I feel like... <laughs> Children That's do different. enjoy these kind of things. <laughs> well, I think I think there's a very big difference. I would say, it, and it's not even necessarily just in children's media, but just like crude humor in general. You have to really sell it, and it has to be something you yourself, as as the writer, find personally funny. Like, any child can tell whenever a fart joke is added to a movie out of obligation, not because anyone actually thought that, that was a funny joke. <laughs> I, I always think back to uh, that Nickelodeon movie Snow Day from the P.E. Pete writers that yeah. just has random foley-den fart noises that no one reacts to. <laughs> At some point before release, they just decided, hey... Add some fart noises <laughs> just <laughs> randomly throughout the soundtrack. There, there is someone pointed this on Twitter last night. There's a moment in Halloween Five where they just start playing like Looney Tune cartoon music as the cops are looking around a house. Like it's only one part of the movie too, where it's like, who fucking wrote this in? Did someone have this smart idea, or did like a studio exec come back and say like, we need a funny scene? Have the cops walk out to like 
kind of music. Like, what happened here? I'm so fascinated every time you have those weird things that's like one scene just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I, a while back, I, I was having this kind of conversation with myself of like, okay, I think of myself as a person who doesn't really like... Who doesn't really care that much for like super crude humor or like bathroom humor or that kind of stuff. And then I thought of all of the things I like that do occasionally have that kind of humor in them. It's like, okay, I don't hate those jokes. I hate when those jokes suck. <laughs> Jamie, got- don't lie to me. The Nutty Professor farting table scene, that was formative in your years, wasn't it? You were growing up and just all the Eddie Murphys farting at the table really just took hold of your imagination. <laughs> hey, that was a wonderland of, of uh, movie ma- magic at the time. Hercules! Hercules! I was thinking to myself, like, okay, I like plenty of stuff like, you know, the Venture Brothers or, like, like plenty of, uh, like, animated shows over the years or even, like, more, like, adult-oriented stuff that occasionally do crude humor. It's just when they do, it's actually funny. Like, if, if Adventure Time or regular show did a fart joke, it was actually funny because that was something the writers themselves thought was funny amongst themselves. It wasn't just, well, let's cross this off a list. Uh, I would say the best example of juvenile humor I cannot stop myself from laughing at anything in the movie Joe Dirt. <laughs> Joe Dirt is a certified yeah. dumb movie yeah. classic. That's a space peanut. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just going to be, th- I'm gonna be thinking about Jamie Joe Dirt jokes the rest of the movie. <laughs> the moment, yeah, the moment he has the, uh, the, the uh, uh, septic tank on his back and they cut the top off. <laughs> oh, I got the poo on me. That is the, that movie has two of the funniest smash cuts in comedy history. <laughs> One, <laughs> smash cutting to him in the shower screaming, I've got the poo on me. And two, hey, is that the house from Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> hey, is that the guy from Silence of the Lambs? We do appreciate it, but that is right be beside. Very well have you seen this boy? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> besides the same coin, they're perfect. So there definitely are moments, yeah, I would say the same, where I'm like, oh, I'm too sophisticated for a fart joke. And then Joe Dirt will make me like, hmm, sounds like a little bitch is talking here. And then I'll be like, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. It's funny. <laughs> when David Spade does it, it's funny. <laughs> That's the only time anyone's ever said that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. Come on, we love David Spade, right? <laughs> Don't, you can't take Tommy Boy away from us. I enjoy whenever he's paired with Chris Farley. But, uh, he's got to be paired with, like, another big guy. That's the, the comedy dynamic yeah. that works. Like, uh, Emperor's New Groove, even if his voice only him and John Goodman? Classic. Try watching Just Shoot Me. I, I was about to bring that up. I'm like, that show, I also thought that was funny. I was going to bring that up as a positive. Actually, I did kind of enjoy that show. Yeah, yeah you will see things my way. 
I'm not taking this David Slade slander in my house. This David slander. I think I said Slade instead of Spade. You did, you did, you did. Oh, no. I saw the Ghostbusters 2 painting there. Yep. Bad kitty! Again, it's not a great joke, but the fact that Jack Black commits to it so much makes me appreciate that line. I'm I'm more ashamed of myself for enjoying that than anything in Joe Dirt. And credits filled with a magical chair Uh, trying to murder a magical plant. I love these credits from a 2005 family movie. That's Yeah, it does feel <laughs> like that. It's, yeah, about a decade behind. We just watched Elf 2. No chairs or topiary griffins were harmed in the making of this motion picture. We got some wacky fun credits. I am a little sad that we didn't push the Edward Gorey connection a little bit more in this commentary. Because, boy, that. that guy has been connected to some great things. Uh, just the art too is phenomenal. If if people aren't aware, Edward Gorey, great illustrator, um, you can you can kind of see hints of it right now as the credits transition to these more hand drawn pieces. Uh, but a lot of his stuff was known for like how black and white it was. The uh, so Frank Langella Dracula was like all his art design. Very cool guy. If you're not aware of the stuff he's done, I would definitely check out more of it. His illustrations are very very cool. Oh, absolutely. Hated children, which comes across a lot in his art. <laughs> but did you ever read his alphabet book? Uh, the Ghastly Chrome Tinies? Yes. Oh, yeah. I've got I've got a big, like, tome of his uh, art in uh, one of my bookshelves uh, from a while back. It's like, just, there's something so... Like, if you've never seen Edward Gorey's stuff... His art has influenced so many things you love that going through like one of his art books like has this super warm blanket feel to it. Like he was super influential on Tim Burton's art style. Yeah. It it feels like it goes hand in hand with a lot of the stuff from like the Adams family. Yeah. Oh yeah, very much so. Also absolute fashion icon, like Google Edward Gorey right now. The bitch is back. Uh, am I am I googling the bitch is back, Edward Gorey, or is that just yes. uh, in association <laughs> with what I? Okay, the bitch. Oh, so if you ever get a chance, back. look up um, Edward Gorey. <laughs> is it EY up, or just Y? I think it's EY. EY. Um, look up the the sets made for uh, the, the theater productions of Dracula and yeah, like seventies and eighties whatnot that uh the john badham movie with frank langella was uh, kind of like adapting and uh d- adapted a lot of the design work but in the designs for the theater version you really get to see what edward gory's um illustrations would have been like if it were completely like um made into reality it, it's really beautiful it's it's very that's where you really first seeing like, oh, this is actually where Tim Burton comes from because that's really when you get to like, um, even like Beetlejuice and stuff, it feels almost like an Edward Gorey play in the design work. Like they're very similar. Yeah, and a lot of his work was like black and white sketches, and it looks like he should have been from like the eighteen hundreds. It always blows me away. Edward Gorey lived until two thousand. 
That's weird, right? Yeah. Like, he doesn't feel like he should have been, like, alive at the same time as me at any point. But he's born in 1925, died in 2000. Uh, and just looking at his art, you would assume, like, oh, this is, like, 1800 shit. He's, he's one of those artists who is well-known and well-respected by the people who know him. But to most people, he's... Like, one of the invisible architects of how the 20th century looked. Like, he's kind of like the other Jack Kirby in that in that way. I'm now looking at fashion pictures of him, and this man is wearing, like, five fur coats and a giant scarf that goes to his knees at the same time. <laughs> Harry Styles ain't got shit on him. Actually, in all of his pictures, it looks like he's wearing a giant fur coat. Apparently, he just really enjoyed fur coats. They're cozy. Also, I love the vaguely church music that's playing over these credits. Again, I really love the score for the movie. Like, we, we got some theremin stuff. We have this kind of spooky church music. It's not the classic gothic organ music either. It's like spooky church which I think fits really well with kind of the warm, but still maybe slightly sinister house of the film. Is there a non spooky church? Uh, there, there's probably like, I don't know, some really modern ones that you can mistake for just being like a La Quinta or something. The church of soul. Yeah. Not really scary. If you just take it on face value and ignore all the people in it, but more like, eh, I don't want to be here. Kind of. looks. That's just most buildings, Cody. Big ass pumpkins. Hard to tell without scale. You need a little person next to them. So anyways, Mike, uh, now that we have basically wrapped... Oh, they're all waving goodbye. Oh, it's so cute. Aww. Now we've wrapped up your first viewing of a house with a clock in its walls, and we talked over the whole time so you couldn't pay attention. What'd you think? It was... You know what? I really enjoyed that. It was... It was as enjoyable as I expected it to be when I first watched the trailer and then forgot to watch it for several years. So thank you for recommending this and doing it for Big Ass Pumpkin. Merry Big Ass Pumpkin Day to all. This commentary nearly six years in the making, which is a hell of a thing to think. Oh, I don't like that. Nope, that's no good. This movie is old enough to be from another time. Five years, Jamie. I think we exaggerated. This 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 was September 2018. Don't die, you dare man. make me feel older. Pumpkins. We're talking pumpkins. Oh god, now that talking thinking, pumpkins, people. I'm thinking Big about pumpkins pumpkin. that rot very quickly. Big rotting pumpkins with holes in them filled with wax and lead weights. Oh god, Big I'm spiraling. Pumpkins. Big rot pumpkins. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I'm going to go have an existential crisis. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. Hopefully, you're not thinking about how all things rot. Uh, go carve a pumpkin. And and just think about, I got to murder this myself and put it in my own design. It's like making children, but easier. And you can throw them away when you're done with them two weeks later. Like children. Like children. Exactly like children. <laughs> Thank you so much, folks. If you want more box office pulp, we're currently halfway-ish through a commentary series on the Saw movies. So keep listening in if you want to hear us try and struggle through Saw 3D. That one's going to be fun. I'm going to make a cocktail that might murder me. Please listen or else I'll have died for nothing. That's all I can say now. I don't want to spoil it. But you can find more Box Office Pulp at boxofficepulp.com. While Twitter is still around, we're at Box Office Pulp. Who knows where we'll be when that thing goes tits up. It's only a matter of time. Invite us to Blue Sky. That's true. I did actually. I, I'm on Blue Sky now. I got one for me. But you <laughs> motherfucker. <for> you, 
sorry. I, I was trying to get more for you guys, and then they're like, we have one. I'm like, that's all I need. <laughs> then you hopped into your hot air balloon and drifted away. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Cody took all of the lifeboats. <laughs> I needed extras. <laughs> There was a part of me that was like, you should make a box office pulp account with this one invite you had. I'm like, but I want it for me. Why shouldn't I keep it? I just had a very Bilbo moment with the ring where I'm like, I, no one can take it from me. So folks at home, if you may enjoy the show. May that ill-gotten link be forever on your head, Cody. <laughs> if folks have more Blue Sky links, uh, I haven't gotten mine yet. If you just want to give them to a poor little podcast down in its luck, you can send them to... <laughs> boxofficepulp at gmail.com that's where else they can they can find us cody just type in box office pulp just i go find to spotify find it, like, it folks at home you find us how did you find this work. episode the <laughs> they're not dumb i trust the audience they're smart people they don't know how to use the internet they too don't like toilet humor humor <laughs> too bad they're getting more joe dirt references next time I said that's a wrap like three times, so I don't know how to end the episode anymore. That we're done. Go home. Goodbye. I love you. We we stop. We have, we stop at sun sung a rousing round of big ass pumpkin day. We got we got one in there. We can, okay. We can, one more, and then you have to all go to bed. Promise me. Okay. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. It's a big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. Big ass, big ass pumpkin day. It's a big ass pumpkin day. Everybody! I'm assuming Mike's gonna fade us out. Big ass pumpkin. It's a big ass pumpkin day. Pumpkin has a huge ass. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I think this is the first time we didn't try to explain Big Ass Pumpkin Day or argue over what day it was. It's true. I noticed Because that. it actually right falls on the 14th and the second Saturday. It's, it's Big Ass Pumpkin Day can't be argued this year. It actually doesn't matter. It's this Saturday. Wow. I did not realize that. It, it happens so rarely. Wow. I'm, I'm glad this can be the after credit scene. So technically we still argued about it. <laughs> pumpkin lord we're not arguing about it i'm informing you <laughs> everyone party on saturday <laughs> everybody party on saturday good night everybody Auf Wiedersehen. this is box office pulp guy and this has been a pulp podcast production now please 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say good night and now on with the show